Hello and welcome to Fireside Farmmaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Rashad talking about everything Farmmaker. Hello, I'm Michael Rashad and welcome to Fireside Farmmaker. And my name is John Mark Osborne. We have a very special guest on the show today. His name is Mark La Rochelle. He has decades of experience in the FileMaker market, so he has a great perspective. We want to get his insights into the entire market. We'll start off with a few basic and personal questions to get to know Mark, and then quickly move into the juicy stuff, talking about DevCon, AWS, plugins, Claris Connect, QuickBooks, Cloud 2.0, and whatever else may come up during the conversation. So let's start with the, the groundwork here. And Mark, tell us what your title and role at Productive Computing is. Hello, and thanks for having me on. I'm Mark LaRochelle, and I'm president and CEO of Productive Computing, Inc. When did you start Productive Computing, Mark? So Productive Computing started together with my brother in 1996. But prior to that, you could technically say Productive Computing started closer to 1993 when I had my first freelance customer and I was helping them with their Macintosh computer. And that was, and were you working with FileMaker at that time? Yes, uh, my, my travels with FileMaker actually started in 1991, where I worked full-time at the National Association of Music Merchants in Carlsbad, California. Okay. And really that's where it all started for me. That's where I got introduced to FileMaker. And the story goes something like this, um, having graduated or just about ready to graduate in the music business as a music business degree uh, there was uh, the necessary ingredient in order to graduate was to perform an internship and that internship had to be anything in the music business so it turns out right here in carlsbad southern california there's a place called the national association of music merchants and they are a nonprofit organization that represents people who uh, make and sell musical instruments worldwide so here i am uh, an opportunity to come to california so i did i became an intern there. And literally in that first, I'd say the first two hours of me walking into that place and I finally sat down, settled in and they said, well, here's your first project. They handed me FileMaker 2.0 on two or three floppy disks. And then alongside of that, they handed me a very thick book called Who's Who in the Music Business. And this book was literally a written directory, much like a white pages or yellow pages that you'd see of days old. And they said, this book needs to be recreated and this is the tool you're gonna to use to do it. And that's pretty much all they said and that's pretty much the only direction I got. So I installed the program and began learning literally just on my own. And then eventually I had you know, the layouts and all the things necessary to replicate and reproduce that directory, which I did and they had professionally printed and that became the book for all the music leaders in that time frame, which was between 91 and 92. And it was all done in FileMaker. Oh, very interesting. I find it interesting how, how everybody comes into the FileMaker market, not necessarily because they decided they want to do FileMaker. Like you go to get a computer science degree and you go to school and you, you study computer science to go ahead and program but when people get into FileMaker, it's like they get introduced it or forced almost in a way to use it. And it seems like it's a story that's told over and over and over again. I think the discovery of FileMaker is more organic than it is systematic. 
uh, usually comes based on a variety of needs, much like you just said, power users, knowledge workers. Those are the people that tend to stumble upon this tool, realize, wow, what a great platform. Wow, it's approachable. I don't need a computer science degree and I can get started right away. And then from there, it evolves. So I totally agree with that, with that opinion. Yeah, I think, I know from my experience, I literally fell in love with it the day I picked it up and I just wanted to play with it and learn it. I was going to say it's a tool that allows uh, for tinkering. And, you know, it's it's a tool that really is approachable. There's really nothing hard about it on its surface in terms of getting started, digging in and, and making something happen right away. What people fail to realize is that how deep it can go and how vast it is, especially nowadays. So. Yeah, I think you hit on a really good point there, Mark, is that, and I call it fiddling, you call it tinkering, but the thing about it is you can try something and get immediate feedback from FileMaker and whether it works or not. It's an amazing tool. One of the things that uh, John and I have observed in our conversations is that, and the, one of the earlier podcasts we did was Native FileMaker Technologies, which I just define as not having to learn another language outside of the FileMaker environment. and. It seems that a lot of people who are coming to FileMaker these days are coming from other platforms. And when they get to FileMaker, they just use what they know and are comfortable instead of really delving or diving deeply into FileMaker. Do you agree with that? I think everybody who comes to FileMaker, if, if, they've, if they've got a formal education in computer science, for example, I've had, a, I've had one of the smartest computer science people that we've ever hired. And there's nothing he couldn't do in the world of computing. And he learned FileMaker over several months and, you know, mastered it like I expected he would. And what was funny to me, after kind of analyzing it and asking him, I said, well, you know, I I find FileMaker, you know, a lot easier than some of these other languages. And he turned and he paused and he says, in so many words, he says, FileMaker there's a lot to FileMaker, and it's not as easy as all that. And what I think he meant was, it's broad, it's vast, it's deep. There's a lot you can do with it. There's no one way to do something. So I think his perspective was was very interesting to me because I, I, I always think of it as something easier than the other languages. But then from the outside in, he looked at it as something really deep and broad and could take a lifeline, a lifetime to master. So. Yeah, I think that's very true. Even after 33 years, I'm still learning every single day. There's never a day goes by I don't learn something new, which to me is just amazing. Yeah, it is a very unique platform. It certainly is one of a kind and special in that way. So we're going to move back to the outline. We want these tangents, but we're going to kind of curb you back into uh, what we decided to cover. And one question we forgot to ask was, how many people do you employ at Productive Computing? So right now, so right now we employ 17 full-time uh, people, combination of developers, product people, hosting support, things like that. And then I'll touch upon another aspect of this, which is those those 17 people, 16 of them are full-time W-2 employees, more of your traditional, what you consider traditional staff. And one of those people, uh, one person is a subcontractor. Now that changes over time. We've had more subs in the past. Uh, but generally speaking, we try to keep the ratio to W-2, you know, 90% or more. And you talked a little bit about this, but 
I wanted to look at how you decide to start a FileMaker business because you've done a lot of things. And I'm interested in just what what kind of moved you at that point to say, hey, I could do this as a business. That's a great question because it goes along with a little bit of a story, which I think puts a perspective on everything. I started with NAM in 91. I told you that. Well, I was a young guy. I had no family. I was 22 years old. And I had my eight to five job. Well, I'm a guy that likes to keep busy. So I said, what can I do to make some extra money? I said, well, you know, I'm pretty good at the computer thing. Why don't I teach computers at night? And back then in those days in 93, you would actually go, there were places, strip malls that would have computer centers. You could buy computers and have computers made for you. Some of those exist today, but along with that came training centers like New Horizons and things like that. So I decided to uh, teach computers at night. Okay, fair enough. And I enjoyed that. Well, one night I had just finished up the class. I had already locked the door. And this little old couple came up and they knocked on the door sort of timidly. And I, of course, I opened it. I said, how can I help you folks? They said, you know, we just want to learn uh, a little bit more about our computers. We need some help. And I said, well, obviously this class is closed right now, but I can come to your house. So I came to their house. And it turns out that that little old couple was actually uh, Patty Page and her husband, Jerry. And Patty Page is the famous singer from the 50s, you know, super famous, had her own TV show, the whole nine yards, Nodes, Elvis, Bob Hope, and all that. So it turns out I met these famous people and started teaching them computers uh, at the rate of three nights, a, three days a week, or nights a week, I should say, plus weekends. And okay, that's all great. But then he had a maple syrup farm in New Hampshire. Jerry owned that, or they did. And then when he found out I was originally from New Hampshire, I became the new prodigal son. And that was it. It was a ma match made in heaven. He became my mentor. And from that point forward, that really was the beginning of productive computing. It, it showed me that people are willing to pay for this stuff. It showed me that I can build databases, custom databases to build on businesses, and that I had what it takes to, to make that demand and, and all that. So really, that's where it all began, that story. So it all started me getting itchy to do something more than just the nine to five. And how long after that did you hire your first developer or did you sub have a subcontractor at that time? Well, that is another interesting point because I am more of a solopreneur type. My very nature is solo. And I didn't hire anybody at that point. I worked from 93 to 96, just me, building my own customers, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in 1996, uh, my brother, who has the same degree in music from the same college and was doing the same internship at NAM, surprisingly, came. And at that point in 96, I left NAM. And Keith and I started Productive Computing together officially at that point from a small apartment in Carlsbad. Now, think about this. I started in 93 to 96, so I already had nearly 30, 40 hours of billable a week at that point, even with the full-time job. So I already had my customers, which were Mac-based people and FileMaker-related customers. My brother knows Windows and Web, so he came and brought those other skills. But to be honest with you, it was tough at first because I am a guy that likes to sort of control everything and by my nature, and I was really headstrong about being independent. Well, that all came to a head. One day, Keith was frustrated with that notion because he wanted to have a business that truly was a partnership. And he stopped me in the middle of the hallway. This is just one night. It kind of blew up. 
And he sort of grabbed me by both shoulders and he shook me and he says, we're either doing this together or we're not doing it at all. And that really woke me up. And I realized at that point, I really did want to do it with him. I really do want to have a business that's more than just me. And we joined the books and became official together at that point. But it was another year or two, Michael, to answer your question, before we actually got our first employee. And when that happened, what was the impetus? Was it that you were simply getting too much work in that you could, couldn't really cope with it and manage it? Or what was the the turning point for you when you brought your first person in? Well, to be honest with you, the first person ended up being more of a partner type person, which was our longtime friend from New Hampshire, a guy named Rich. And Rich flew out to California and literally became our partner in a sense. So it was the three of us that partnered with Productive Computing. Now, this is 1998. At this point, I bought my first house and the three of us were working out of the house. Keith was living with me. Rich had his own place, and the three of us would work there. But within six months or so, Rich uh, said, you know what? Owning a business is not for me. I just don't have the stomach for it. I've got to go back to full-time work. Because Rich was a tried and true traditional programmer who had learned FileMaker and thought it would be cool to have, you know, hey, let's join with our buddies from back home and build something. But it just didn't work out for him. So he left. But at that point, we realized, oh, we can work with someone other than just Mark and Keith. We can bring on an employee. And from that point, that's what we did. And it turns out that our very next employee after that was truly an employee. And it was our cousin, Dan, who uh, had IT experience, Mac experience, and learned FileMaker as well. So the, the beginning days was very much like old homes day. We were, we were doing friends and we were doing cousins. And nothing was really official. We were still working out of the house. But that didn't last too long. Before you know it, we got our first office space and was able to hire were able to hire additional employees and to answer your question why what brought that about it was simply the demand was exceeding the supply and we needed a way to expand so that we could provide more services to more people now you mentioned mark that you have 90% or more w2 employees and I started out in the business saying I don't want to have any employees because I don't want to be a manager I don't want to have to check their work I just want to do my, I decided to be a single person right from the beginning. And I think it's also an important decision to, there's a lot of FileMaker developers out there with, with, you know, almost all contractors. And I wanted to get your viewpoint on contractors, uh, the good and the bad and the ugly. If you give us some insight into your feelings on, on working with contractors versus employees. Sure. I can easily give you the perspective on that. So there's good and bad, of course, with everything. And, Contractors versus non-contractors is also uh, you know, falls into that realm. So let's talk about contractors first. So let's talk about the advantages and then the disadvantages. The advantages are you've got someone who generally has uh, pretty good experience because as a contractor, they're exposed to multiple customers. That's different than hiring an, uh, someone who was an internal developer for a company. When you hire an independent contractor who's worked for multiple customers, they've seen more. They know how to integrate more things. They're generally more uh, well-rounded. They already know how to talk to customers, which is important when they're representing you and your company. You want them to be able to talk to customers. It's flexible. Sometimes they work after hours, which helps. If you're doing a migration, it's nice to be able to hire somebody and have them do that after hours. Uh, they generally can scale up and scale down 
with your demands. Hey, we've got a big project. I need you 30 hours this week, or, you know, I've got nothing for the next three weeks. And generally you can have a relationship and maintain a relationship like that with that person without any hard feelings about being obligated to X amount of hours per week. So those are some of the advantages. I'm sure there's a few I'm I'm missing, uh, but I'll tell you about some of the disadvantages now. So the disadvantage is number one, in the state of California, subcontractors in general are, and more now than ever, generally frowned upon by the state agencies. They just want to find a way to get payroll taxes. And the best way to do that is to put people on a W-2. So the rules are are ever more strict and more um, enforced than ever before. So it's becoming really tough to have any kind of subcontract relationship with a FileMaker developer because some of those rules mandate that the person, if the person is doing that as their primary work and they're working primarily for you, then that's not considered a subcontractor in the eyes of the law here in California. So the disadvantage is it's hard to really make someone a contractor and have it legal. Uh, The second disadvantage is there's no intrinsic loyalty built in. Uh, With a W-2, they know they're working for you. Generally, they have benefits through you. There's a lot of dedication and loyalty there. With a subcontractor, they're free to choose who to work with and when. So that always gives them a leg up if you're in a negotiation type situation. They have other customers and they can choose their priorities and their schedule. So in that sense, you can't really rely on them as much. However, with that said, we've had a great many subcontractor relationships. In fact, some of the greatest ones started where those people were W-2 in-house, became subcontractors, and it's like nothing ever changed. It's just that they have now more flexible schedules. Uh, Those make the best subcontractors because you already know what they're like. They already have that intrinsic loyalty and dedication to you simply because of the relationship they had at one time. So we've got some great relationships with some existing subs that were once employees. Yeah, so those are advantages and disadvantages. As a general rule, because of the law, that's the primary reason we steer clear from the subcontractor thing. We just have to, uh, it's, it's just easier in business to play by the book than it is to buck the system. Well, of course, you could always move away from California. You could move to Nevada. <laughs> oh, boy. If I wasn't married... <laughs> My wife really likes it out here. Her parents are out here. Keith's wife is out here. Her parents are out here. So that's not happening anytime soon between the kids and the family. So yeah, we're going to stay in California. Yeah, I have the same issue. My wife, I've said, we could live in a mansion if we moved to Georgia. <laughs> Kentucky. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, it's maybe somebody a little more desirable than Kentucky, although probably I apologize for anybody living in Kentucky, but California is a pretty awesome place to live, but there are a lot of rules. And let's move into uh, our last kind of personal question, I think, which is how many instruments do you play? (laughs) Well, I play two instruments mainly. I guess you could consider a third. I play piano. I started playing piano when I was eight. I took two years of lessons when I was eight. I took one more year when I was 16, and so I basically had three years worth of piano lessons, and I still play today and have a YouTube channel and all that stuff. And then I play I play saxophone. I started that in the sixth grade, and that was my instrument in college. In music business school, you have to pick a main instrument. So that was the instrument I picked, and that's the one you do all your auditions on and all your um, recitals and things like that. So I play saxophone, alto sax, and then a third one, I, I started taking um, steel drum lessons. 
um, and learned a little bit about the steel drum, but I would not consider that a main instrument by any stretch, but it is something I'm familiar with. So you do have a, a YouTube, a personal YouTube channel for, for some type of music application or? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of people teaching people how to play piano on the internet right now. So that's not what I do. I teach people how to program their Nord synthesizer keyboards all over the world. Essentially, I take that technical mind that you know we all three of us have, and I say, let's figure out how to operate this instrument. So I show them what all the knobs and buttons do. And then I show them how to get sounds from famous rock groups and famous you know, instruments and things like that, bring all that together and basically show them how to get the most out of the instrument. 70% of my traffic is outside the U.S. So it's a large international community, people watching my stuff and learning how to operate these keyboards. Now you have been in business for a long time and you have a broad offering of FileMaker services and, you know, and products and things like that. So we want to get a broad overview of your company for people who are listening. I think most people are probably familiar with productive computing, but let's talk about first about your hosting. What types of hosting are there? Can you give us some comments on AWS, Cloud 2.0, all that kind of good stuff? Sure. So hosting is a changing landscape and changing now more than ever. When hosting first started out, it was traditionally called shared hosting where a company like us could invest in a single FileMaker server and host multiple customers on a single server without incident or without um, any kind of implication. Uh, we would be able to get sometimes up to 40 different customers on a single server, depending on the usage and, and the needs and requirements. Uh, then FileMaker 15, the ver that version of FileMaker and thereon up, uh, mandated that if you are going to have a named customer they have to be on their own dedicated server. Uh, there's only one exception to that rule, and that is if you are a FileMaker SBA member and you have a vertical market solution, you are allowed to have a single solution on a single server representing multiple customers. And the other mandate to that is that any one of those customers cannot have full access to any file on that server. So those are the mandates there. And uh, I helped get that rule through myself because I said, you know, the industry will come unglued if you also mandate that SBA customers need a server for every customer. So shared hosting. Any questions on? Yeah, basically, that's what drove the price up, tripled the price from people who are using, let's say, FileMaker 16 or was it 14 server? Because it was in 15 that that happened. Basically, if you go above that, you have to have a dedicated server and it triples the cost, at least from what I've seen from most offerings out there. Correct. Uh, triple, yep, that's a, that's about right, depending on you know what, what you're paying for. And it makes it, uh, so it's more costly for the provider because obviously now they have to you know incorporate a, a server for every customer. So that the prices go up there. In addition, whereas we would buy one version of FileMaker server, representing all those customers in a shared hosting environment. Now we're buying a version of server for every customer. So the customer is responsible to buy their own FileMaker server, which also, which again brings up the price. So it's not just the increase in hosting, it's also the increase in licensing costs. So what I'm doing right now, right now is, is using FileMaker 16 to access a FileMaker 14 server so I can pay less for hosting. And that's something you can do, but once you go to FileMaker 17 or 18, it won't connect to that 14 server. Is that correct? That is correct. It's 14 through 16 compatibility pathway. 17 requires its own dedicated server and FileMaker server 15 or higher. With regard to the hosting, um, since this has changed dramatically, and 
when you say a dedicated server, does that mean you actually have to have a physical box or can you create virtual servers for this purpose? No, the, the servers can be virtual or dedicated hardware, but there's no mandate to say that the hardware has to be dedicated. It just has to be the server instance. So that includes virtual servers. But since most people are buying these days, really forced to buy VLAs and, and get five or more licenses, and that includes FileMaker Server. I'm just wondering if there's any real benefit to FileMaker or now Claris by doing it this way. Do you want, what, are there any technical reasons that I might not be aware of, Mark? Uh, so your question is, are, are there technical reasons why File, well, Claris would mandate that? Yeah. The, the, the actual reasons are probably numerous. Um, the main driving force is unknown because I literally don't know the main driving force. But I can tell you that besides um, an obvious increase in licensing revenue, which I'm not saying that's the primary reason, but it is, I think, a nuance of that relationship. The other reason is for increased security and reliability, with the thought being if a single server entity has less people connecting to it, it therefore is more secure. I think even someone like Stephen Blackwell might agree with that. Um, by mandating that those that are on a shared server today, which would be SBA only, mandating the fact that no one can have direct full access to any one file where they could infiltrate and do damage to the server is also a point to be taken to say, yes, I think it is actually more secure for a given customer if they are, in fact, the only customer on that server. So I do agree with that sentiment. Whether that was the primary driving force or not, I will. I don't know if we'll ever find that out. Well, I think here's my perspective on it. I think that that when FileMaker Server was first created and FileMaker was first created, it was never envisioned to be what it was on the cloud with multiple people. It was meant to be one copy of server per person. And it was really built into it. And the, and the way that, that things that changed as far as putting your, your server up in the cloud, it kind of changed everything. And FileMaker had to catch up on their licensing. And so I don't think it, they really uh, changed anything per se, because that's the way it was always intended to be, is to be one copy of FileMaker server per company. They just kind of had to change the rules because the rules changed on them, the environment changed on them. Yeah, I, I think that's that's true to a large extent, John. I totally think that that's true. I think there's another nuance, though. The In a shared server environment, the person purchasing server is the hosting company. So the customers are the customers of the hosting company. So in a sense, I, one could argue that it is a single server for a single com company or customer. But I, I do agree that when FileMaker Server was first created, it wasn't even thought of. Hosting wasn't thought of, number one. And number two, it wasn't thought of that there'd be multiple businesses or organizations operating off a single server. I don't think that was vision, so I agree with that. So let's talk about there are basically right now two types of hosting, and, and I believe a third one coming out. There is the traditional hosting you know, where you buy your own hardware and you buy your own software. And then you have hosting in the cloud with AWS. And then this new hosting coming out that they've set up a roadmap about. There's not a lot of firm details about it, but we've got a pretty good idea what's going on. And if you could tell us, uh, you know, what you think about these different ways of hosting and, you know, 
just your perspective on it. I'd be interested since you know so much about hosting. Sure. So I, there's actually five different ways to host a FileMaker database, if I can quickly categorize them. There's the on-premise server. That's more of the traditional, you know, one company, one server, they host it on site. We call that on-premise. And there's advantages to that because the data is secure. Everything is 100% behind the organization. And the only reason I'm talking about it here is because as I talk about Cloud 2.0, you'll quickly gain an appreciation for why someone would still want an on-premise server uh, in this day and age. And uh, a lot of that comes to Active Directory integration, which is really hard to do once you get a server out in the cloud. Not impossible. People have done it, and it's, it's something that can be done. But it's not something that, generally speaking, uh, the hosting companies offer today because it requires a direct connection to the on-premise directory of the organization and the FileMaker server, which is on the cloud. So without getting too complicated, we have the on-premise server, which we all know is uh, traditional. Then we have the shared hosting model, which is still going strong today. Less and less people are signing up for shared hosting because people can't buy FileMaker 16 anymore. You only really can buy FileMaker 18. So if you have 18, you got to go with a dedicated server. Which brings us to hosting in a traditional sense. That's where a company like us would provide a server dedicated, put FileMaker Server 18 on there. And that's traditional hosting. And then you get two more flavors offered by Claris themselves directly. Uh, flavor number one in the original called FileMaker, uh, excuse me, FileMaker Cloud for AWS. And that's the official name. That name changed recently. It changed uh, prior to DevCon, FileMaker Cloud for AWS, and then this new thing coming out, which they've loosely uh, announced at DevCon and will be coming soon. It's called, well, I call it FileMaker Cloud 2.0, uh, but I believe it may just be called FileMaker Cloud. I'll have to clarify that. I'm not sure exactly what the official name is gonna be. So uh, those are the different flavors. We've already talked about shared. We talked a little bit about on-premise. Uh, let's talk a moment about the FileMaker hosting by companies like us, traditional hosting. What that allows us to do is we can take either a virtual server or a dedicated hardware server, put it in the cloud, which essentially means put it in a data center. That's really all it means. Uh, a company like us would maintain it, manage it, update it for OS, update the uh, FileMaker server version when the new versions come out, possibly even maintain the files for a given customer, check on the script schedules, have a complete and total VIP package for someone who doesn't really want to manage servers, they just want to build databases or manage data. And we use for that, um, right now we're using AWS in its traditional mechanism, and we're using FileMaker Server for Windows. And that's running on Windows Server 2016. So essentially that's, that's the model there. The FileMaker Cloud model is completely different in that it still runs on AWS, but it doesn't run on Windows, it runs on Linux. And that mechanism is sort of locked behind closed doors. It's completely uh, proprietary to FileMaker. You can't really manage an operating system when you purchase FileMaker Cloud. There's nothing to manage. There's, it's just you start it up on a server. You don't actually, it's, you're not using any kind of GUI tools to do that. It's, it's all click buttons within your setup of AWS. When you purchase it through the AWS marketplace, you'll say buy FileMaker Cloud, X amount of users, click, 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 and then it'll establish an account. It'll give you a link to connect to. You'll have full admin console like you would in any other server, but everything that runs it is behind closed doors. The distinction and some of the distinctions between 
FileMaker Cloud for AWS in this new version is that FileMaker Cloud for AWS requires you, the customer, to have an existing AWS account. And just by me saying that, you've lost a good many people who are not interested or even wanting to cross that path. That's where it becomes difficult or laborious because having an AWS account requires some intrinsic responsibility. Now you have an account to manage, you've got to manage your bill, you've got to look at things, you've got to make sure things are on or off at a certain situation. For instance, if you do a FileMaker Cloud AWS trial and you start that trial up and you exceed the trial date, you're going to be charged full pricing, which is by the way, 99 cents an hour. Now, if you add that up over the number of average hours in a month, which is 730, that's going to cost more money than you probably anticipated. So again, all that responsibility falls on the customer right now. And I think it's a good first step, but one of the inherent problems with that scenario is that it really does put still too much responsibility on the customer. It almost makes them a hosting company, almost, uh, to that level of, of knowledge that you need to really know what you're doing and kind of get it all set up and, and running. Oh yeah, uh, compared to clicking a button you know, and saying, here's my server, it's a lot more than clicking a button. Now, granted, I, I might be painting a picture. It really depends. I mean, the savvier the person is, if they're an IT person with AWS experience, it won't seem difficult at all. It'll seem like another day in the life. But to a knowledge worker who's never really set up server, let alone AWS, it seems like a lot of work slash complicated slash, wow, this is not even fun. This is IT. This is not FileMaker. This is, you know, real IT responsibility. It's complicated, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not a dumb guy. So what I'm saying is, can you imagine if someone who wasn't born and bred a full-time developer, just a knowledge worker, someone in a department trying to get something set up, uh, FileMaker Cloud, you know, FileMaker Cloud for AWS may not be the best tool. I mean, just to, just to make it clear, I found it complex beyond reason and why I want to go to a hosting company so that they set up all that stuff for me. And here comes the new kid on the block, FileMaker Cloud 2.0. And the promise of that product is that it doesn't require you to have your own AWS account. You literally can take all of that and throw it out the window because you don't need that. All you need is essentially a FileMaker Cloud account, which you'd set up directly on the Claris website. You'd put in the number of users and click a few buttons and moments later, you will have a FileMaker Cloud set up for you and you don't have to maintain it or manage it. The licensing for FileMaker server and the number of users you want to connect on the platform is completely built in and tied into that. And they use FileMaker ID as a mechanism to connect all those pieces so that you have, you know, you can log in with your FileMaker ID, which is the traditional FileMaker ID you guys might already be familiar with. It's the same ID that gets you into communities and marketplace and all the other aspects of Claris right now. Do you think that Claris intended to do this when they launched FileMaker Cloud three or four years ago? Or do you think this is just kind of a, a natural extension looking for a, a, a better way and simpler way to do it because of AWS is very complicated and because they see it as a potentially very lucrative revenue source? Well, I can't speak 100% for FileMaker, but I can give you what I think might be going on in terms of my own opinion. When, and I was involved to some degree on the ETS of the original FileMaker cloud for AWS. So I, I, I was in some of those meetings and I did understand some of the 
the things that were going on in terms of purpose of, of their creation. So let's let's take let's wind the clock back just a little bit and say when that was being created, that engineering was literally brand new stuff. I mean, we were first of all they had to take FileMaker Server and, and get that to run on Linux. Now maybe it wasn't their first time doing that because if you guys think back, FileMaker Server used to run on Linux and then they uh, dis- disabled and abandoned that idea. But it came back. And so, okay, so they have to run it on Linux. Then they have to create a construct that allows people to set, to buy something, put in XYZ in terms of number of users and region, for example. And then they have to automate a, the FileMaker being created, installed, and configured based on those instructions. And in the AWS world, that's called cloud formation. There's tools for that that allow all that to happen. So besides all that, they had to figure out, okay, how are we going to handle script schedules? How are we going to handle backups? What's the best way to do that? And all this stuff had to be created really from scratch. It never existed before, at least in the FileMaker world. So I think, Michael, I think that FileMaker Cloud for AWS was really the first walk before you run release so they could start getting their arms around this beast, which is how do we get FileMaker Server to run on a world-class cloud platform? And these are the early stages and the first steps. And early adopters would have to go and have their own AWS account, but it it does work. It it is serving customers today, and it was a feasible product. I think what they learned along the way and the feedback they might have received from a lot of those customers or the ones that tried to adopt but never really made it, was simply kind of echoing what I already said, which is, gee, I really don't want to have my own AWS account. Gee, it seems more complicated than it needs to be or should be. We can do better. So now, while all that's going on, in the back, from a sales and marketing perspective, think about FileMaker as a platform. You need to stay relevant. And their competition is literally all cloud-based. There really isn't competition necessarily that runs server side, you know, servers on premise and that kind of thing was sort of the old guard of how things were done. So how do we build relevancy to the platform? Oh, we need a good cloud solution. Cloud 2.0 does, or so it seems, will uh, fulfill that promise, which is, you know, you go to a website, you put in your credit card, you push OK, and before you know it, you've got a server set up. And that will help, I think, the platform compete and or stay aligned with today's world, which is cloud-based computing, cloud-based offerings, SaaS-based offerings, things like that. So I think it was both, uh, I think primarily, Michael, the, the the reason why is not so much revenue versus relevancy. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, viewpoint. Do you think it's going to have any effect on whether you continue to provide and offer and provide hosting? This is the million dollar question. Uh, Let me give you some facts. We thought this would happen when FileMaker released FileMaker Cloud for AWS. We honestly looked at each other and said, well, there goes our hosting business. And what we quickly realized is that number one, customers are slow to change. I mean, not all customers even know what FileMaker Cloud is even today. I mean, I'm talking about traditional customers, the kind that barely know they have a FileMaker system. You know those types? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. So I'm, I'm not speaking to, uh, to anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about. Um, so they, they're slow to change. Maybe they got wind that, oh, I have to own an AWS account. Oh, that sounds complicated. So it seemed more, more difficult than it was. And to be truthful, we almost lost no business because of that. In fact, we even gained more business because now the whole idea of when FileMaker said we have something in the cloud, people got to thinking, hmm, 
yeah, I think we should put our systems in the cloud. Then they go put in a search on Google that said FileMaker hosting. Maybe our name comes up. They start having the call. We talk to them and say, yeah, we can use FileMaker Cloud or you can go traditional hosting and here are some of the advantages. And before you know it, we had more customers. So I think what it did for us, Michael, is it said, yes, the capability of hosting your FileMaker database in the cloud exists. Here's this thing called FileMaker Cloud. That started the conversation, but it ended up turning into an actual customer for us versus losing a customer with people running to FileMaker Cloud in droves. That has never happened, not once. Has anyone just said, okay, we're going to quit your hosting. We're going to go with FileMaker Cloud. Because we ask, well, then we say, why would you do that? The money is not that much different. And now you have to manage it on your own. I think that's the important part is that you make it less complicated with your service. It's a service. Yep. If people, you know, I, I often struggle with this question, guys. And this is being a little vulnerable here to say, you know, why do we have a FileMaker hosting company? And if we do have a FileMaker hosting company, why are our rates not the cheapest around? And I've quickly come to the conclusion that we are doing this for our customers first. This is sort of a VIP red carpet service for customers who simply don't want to bother with hosting. And we can be there for them with good customer service, certified FileMaker people really knowing what we're doing and said, I think they get so much more than hosting when they buy hosting through us. That I said, yeah, that's the customer I want. Someone who appreciates it for what it is, not as a commodity service, but more of a VIP you know, we're going to take care of them morning, noon, and night. Yeah, let me tell a little story, Mark. And one of the reasons why you use your company exclusively for my client's hosting. And I was maybe five years ago or something. I don't remember exactly when, but I had to contact a hosting company that my client was using. So I called them on the phone. They didn't answer. I left a message. You know, there's no receptionist, just left a message. And the way they got back to me is they emailed me. They didn't call me on the phone. When I call your company, and I made fun of you the other day because I, I think after calling you for 10 years, one time somebody didn't answer the phone. Somebody almost always answers the phone and you get somebody and they say, yeah, you know, uh, Mike, uh, or, I'm sorry, uh, Mark is, is in a meeting right now, but he can call you probably afterwards or whoever else you might be able to get a hold of. And that's the kind of service you're offering, not you know, having to call up Amazon and, and talk to some technical guy and, and you know, you do all the work for them. It, it's just, it's a great service. And I'd rather pay a little bit more for that because then I don't have to worry about that. I want to do my job and not have to worry about something about all this hosting mumbo jumbo. Well, thanks for that. And, and I, I totally agree with what you're saying there in terms of what we're passionate about. And answering the phone is one of those things for sure. And in addition, like for instance, some customers... Uh, have server-side scripts running, and we get notifications of those. And sometimes those scripts will either be a runaway script or something is throwing a, a major error. We'll immediately email the developer and say, hey, did you know your script, blah, blah, blah. We're not making any money doing that. It's it's their work. They're getting, you know, they get to charge their customer to do the work. But we're sort of like keeping a watchful eye on the system and we'll alert the developer when anything goes wrong. Taking a step further, we've had a few customers call us as the hosting company and say, you know, I'm not happy with my developer right now because they're not being responsive. Is there anything you guys can do? And we say, well, who's your developer? And then they say who the developer is. And we say, okay, well, let, let, we'll get back to you. And what we do in every case is we reach out to the developer and we say, your customer is not exactly happy with your response right now. They're kind of fishing around. 
you know, get on top of this so that, you know, and all, and the developers love us for that because they know we're not going to poach their customers. They know that we're looking out for them, number one. So that that's the kind of way we run the hosting business. And I think, John, I think that kind of echoes what you're saying there. I agree. You're one of the most honest guys in the business. I, I'm glad to call you my friend and glad to see you on this interview, giving you this really great perspective of the FileMaker market. And we've talked a lot about hosting, which is great stuff. I've learned some stuff today myself, but let's move on to another subject, another aspect of your company, which is plugins, which I've used quite a few of them over the years. And I'm just curious, let's start, you know, start talking about plugins. Tell me what you think is important to know about them or what's coming up and whatever is on your mind. Sure. Well, I'm happy to say that plugins continue to be supported by FileMaker or Claris. Uh, it's something that they've had for a long, long time. And it's something they plan to keep in the future in terms of being able to support plugins and having a plugin API for people like us to be able to build that. So I'm happy to say they haven't uh, in any way deprecated that technology, which is good because there's a lot of plugins out there. We're talking thousands and thousands of users of plugins worldwide when you consider all the companies that make them and all the things they do. And plugins provide a key ingredient on many of these solutions that couldn't otherwise be done with FileMaker alone. So we have several plugins. Our first plugin was in 1998. It was called Change Printer. <laughs> and the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, and you know what? It was one of the most popular plugins when we released it because FileMaker didn't have the ability to sort of memorize which printer to print to by itself. You needed a plugin in order to say, okay, print to this laser printer and then go print to this envelope. And that couldn't be done without a plugin. And so we created it for a customer. It was actually the Delmar racetrack here uh, in Delmar. And they are printing tickets and they still use this plugin and our services to this day. This was back in 1998. And what they needed to do is they needed to print to these high speed thermal ticket printers because they had thousands of people coming to the races every day. And they needed a way to print to that. And FileMaker didn't have the ability to print to a thermal printer. It requires XYZ coordinates through the printer port uh, or through one of the other ports. So we needed a plugin to do that. That's what, that's what got us into the plugin business. It had nothing to do with us saying, hey, we want to build plugins. No, it all had to do with a customer. So that um, that's where it all began. And then from there, we said, geez, there's something to this. We're really helping people solve some problems they couldn't otherwise solve. And we built more and more plugins. And now we have something like 13 or so plugins that do everything from talk to QuickBooks to Exchange to Outlook, biometric devices, PDFs, uh, files, address book, iCal, all kinds of things. So the distinct advantage of a plugin and why you would ever need one is it takes the work and toil and connectivity hassle out of the equation for the traditional FileMaker developer. Uh, something as what seemingly seems easy, how do I get FileMaker to talk to iCal, for example? Well, you really only have a couple of choices. You can build a plugin and go, go about it that way, purchase something from us for, let's say, a yearly fee of XYZ, and then you get all this functionality built in, a complete library of tools to, that allow you to do that. Or you can build your own Apple Script. Apple Script will do it too. But you got to know Apple Script. So how long is that going to take? And it's not cross-platform or anything like that. So, but iCal never was cross-platform on the Mac. True. But I mean, when you're talking about like general connectivity, like things that are cross-platform, like file plugins and things like that, you know. And it's so funny because so many of the plugins we've created over the years 
have been built into FileMaker over the years. So when Michael had mentioned, how do I feel about FileMaker hosting and how that's our business could be damaged by what FileMaker releases, uh, this has been going on for years, guys. And I'm sure it's nothing personal, but let me give you an example. We had a plugin called uh, Calendar Pop-Up, which you clicked a button and it provided a month view and a year view and a three-month view so that you could pick a calendar date. Well, sure enough, FileMaker came up with, a, with its own calendar pop-up. And of course, sales almost overnight went into the toilet. I mean, it was literally... <laughs> <laughs> and I have to give credit to FileMaker. They did give us a few months notice on that to say, hey, I think we're going to be building something that's going to potentially harm you guys. So at least they gave us a, a heads up. So we kind of knew it was coming. But that was a prime example of where something was created that hurt our business. But the way we look at it is... So many people who, A, would never use a plugin because they just don't believe in them, two, never even knew our plugin existed. Now the whole platform and everyone using it gets the advantage of that calendar pop-up that FileMaker built. So that helps the platform. And ultimately, the platform helps us as a business and a community. So I embrace new things that FileMaker and Claris come up with because uh, I think if anything that can make the platform rise to another level will help everybody in the end. Does it personally hurt our business? Sometimes it does. And luckily we can run and jump and hide and scramble and find something that it can't do that we can do that we can make some money on and you know provide as an added value. Which by the way, we don't we want to talk about uh, you know Claris Connect before this call is over. Sure, absolutely. I mean everything has a shelf life. You know, when you look at we all look at solutions we developed, you know, five years ago. There's so much that we wouldn't do the same way now because the technology and the methodologies have changed completely. And we've also grown and got better as we develop. So everything has a shelf life, including us. So true. Uh, there was a time where we, in order to create a value list, we had to introduce a new FileMaker file because a single file couldn't hold multiple tables. And then you ended up with a, a solution with 55 files with 30 of them being value lists, you know, related to a, having to need a single value list as a dropdown. It's making me cringe. Don't bring up that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> You'd open up a folder for FileMaker, you know, solution, and there'd be 50 files there. And you're like, my goodness. What's going on here? And, and it's so easy when you have a single file, which is why Michael and I are so against the separation model, because it's going backwards, in my opinion. Having a single file makes development in most situations easier, and we love it. We want to move on to the other areas. They're not as, I mean, I want to talk about them a little bit. I think the other areas of your company uh, that you have perspective on would be vertical market solutions. And I want to find out, you know, for anybody out there trying to create their own vertical market solution, where are some of the pitfalls? What are some of the things they should watch out for? The number one thing to watch out for in a vertical market solution is to underestimate the development time and support required and the marketing labor that's also required. So in order to have a successful vertical market, you need a killer product and you need to have killer marketing in the, and besides all that, it has to have, there has to be some need in the industry for it. And then probably the biggest piece is the industry expertise. So that is a lethal 
concoction of very difficult things to get in a single bowl, if you know what I mean. For someone to have both industry knowledge, uh, technical aptitude to build a system, and market savviness to, to actually market it, and then the effort and energy that it takes to, to actually produce a product and send it to market and that, that it can sell and then they can support. It's really, really tough for one person to do that. Really, really tough. I'm not saying it's impossible. Some have done it, but I've met very few people that can do it alone. Very few, if any. I agree. I think people think that they build a solution for their own company and then all of a sudden they can just release it as a vertical market solution. And there's so many different things you have to consider that are different about a solution built for your own company versus multiple companies that are unknown. Right. Uh, so true. And um, because we have a hosting division, we often cross paths with people who have vertical markets because they say, hey, I'm, I'm creating something in a vertical market. We say, great. I need someone to host that. We say, great. We help them through that. So we get to see really a day in the life on a lot of these verticals, what they go through and what what some of the trials and tribulations are. And it's just the vast expertise needed to complete the solution in a way that makes it a truly world-class solution. You really need a lot of components. So I'd like to get some specifics about what you would need to do to a homegrown solution to make it ready for prime time to sell to anybody off of a website. What are some of the major items that you would list that you wouldn't have thought you had to do? Okay. Number one, I think the thing to do would be to create an elaborate preferences slash, um, yeah, preferences area. What you think might be what you need or the default screen you want it to open to or the color palette or the window size or even the language, what you think might work for everybody will probably only work for like 20% of the people. And then the rest of the customers are going to want something that your system doesn't do or that you didn't even think about. So I think the first thing you need to do from an architectural standpoint is build it in such a way that you have as many preferences as possible. But maybe a better way to say that is to have as many preferences as as feasible so that your solution is fairly agile from day one. Now, I'm not saying build every preference that you could ever think of. That would be impractical and you probably bloat the system down with too much. But you have to find that balance. So that's the first thing. The second thing that um, that I think you need is the industry-specific knowledge that made you create your so-called homegrown system. As much as you think the industry that you're looking at uh, does things the way you do, you'll probably find that they don't do the way th things the way that. Yes, you're probably in the same industry. You sell the same sort of thing. Maybe you handle the same types of customers and the same type of materials. But the truth is everyone does it differently. And what you'll quickly f see on that very first customer is that they do it totally different than you ever thought they would. In fact, you don't like the way they do it. So what you quickly find out is that your solution becomes uh, sort of obsolete on day one until you start working with multiple people. So the second part of this, besides making preferences, is to work with multiple people and get some feedback early on from some variety, get some variety, and so you can really build it with perspective. The next thing is, how do you protect it? How do you protect it? Do you protect it by the number of users? Do you, do you give everyone a site license and charge them for that and hope that they don't take it and share it with a friend? Do you protect it with some other mechanism other than users? Maybe you protect it based on 
um, some sort of a, you have a host and they can only get to it through, through a hosting company or through a host that you provide it with. Do you give them full access or don't you? If you don't give them full access, do you give them the ability to export their data when they want it back? All of those things have to be considered. So protecting it is a big part of it. Uh, the third, uh, the next thing to think about is how do you update it? When, when you do find a bug, fair enough. What we're used to now, guys, is customer has a bug. You jump on the customer system, you fix the bug. Simple as that. They want to change, you get on there, you change it. Well, what happens if you have 10 customers who all bought version one of your product? But customer three wants XYZ and customer seven wants another thing. At what point do you decide to roll that into all 10 customers or uh, fork, create a fork in the road and say customer seven ha now has their own system and customer two now has their own system, whereas the rest of the customers all have version one and it's the original version. And you might say, well, that's easy. I'll just decide what I feel like. But then what happens when a customer wants to quote unquote upgrade? Or what happens when they want to move to a new version of FileMaker? Or what happens when, you know, those are all the things you got to think about when you're talking about scale. It's not just you and your system. It's you and many systems. And then if you do decide to upgrade it, what's the best way to do that? Do you use one of the tools? Do you, uh, do you take it down and import data offline? Do you use the data migration tool from FileMaker? I mean, this is, so you have to think through all that. Then we talked about protection, we talked about preferences, we talked about uh, upgrading. Then the next thing you got to think about is marketing. And as much as we all think we could post it somewhere and all of a sudden people are going to be interested because they said they were, doesn't actually mean they're ready to look at it or even buy it. So I think marketing is tricky because uh, it's usually a long-term play. It usually requires hours and hours of labor even advertising doesn't necessarily guarantee anything. So I think that's one of the trickiest and riskiest parts of a vertical market solution is how the heck do you sell it after you build it? Building it's easy. Selling it, that's the bear, in my opinion. Now, salespeople I've talked to say, ah, selling it's easy. Building is the part that I can't do. So what you, what you try to find is you got to find someone, in my opinion, if you're a developer, you got to find someone who's really good at sales and marketing. If you're a sales and marketing person, you got to find a really good developer. I don't see it working any other way. I don't, like I, like John, you kind of acknowledged how many people really do all those things well as a single human being. Well, it's not only that um, doing it well, it's having the time to do all of it. And, you know, programming is very time consuming. And when you're developing a vertical solution, and I've developed several, you really have to be thinking on a much broader scale in terms of what you're doing to allow the flexibility and to, you know, when somebody says, well, we do it this way, you've got to be able to go, okay, I can make that change, but I'm not going to, I have to do it in a way that I'm not going to affect all the people who do it a different way. So those are big factors that you have to take into consideration. Now, the one thing that I've always said is, I always develop one solution and I keep working on that one solution. That's the master file. And I put all the new functions and features into that master file. But I allow the users to turn those on or off, depending on whether they want to use them. Because otherwise, I don't think you can keep control of the process. I like that uh, deployment scheme. 
And so I think uh, one thing that you, you may have forgotten is you have to provide support, technical support, customer support. People don't think about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I hadn't even mentioned support or some of the other things that are involved. But support is big. And customers will call you. Customers will call you just to have – customers will call you just because their iPad isn't working. And somehow they've figured out that that's related to the system that you put on there. <laughs> you know, uh, something as simple as downloading FileMaker Go, it could be a, a support call. Or my internet is down. My internet's slow. Can you guys help me out? Well, not really, but I can help you test it a little bit and see if, it, if that's the case. So you're absolutely right. Support is huge and very costly when you think about it because you got to train a human being, your system. You got to make sure they're friendly to the customer, uh, that they're providing great support. And quite frankly, customers expect that for free. So it really comes out of your pocket 100%. So I think that anybody who's out there who wants to build their own solution and sell it, we're not telling you not to do it, just make sure you know what things you have to do. And we probably have hit maybe some of the big ones, but not some of the other ones. When you have to put an online help in it probably so they can click a button and help information comes up. You have to write a manual usually. Uh, you know, all these things, they just the list keeps going on and on. So it's not a, a simple process. And I know you guys at Productive don't go into it lightly producing a solution that you're going to sell from your website. No, absolutely not. Especially when it has a university course tied to it for full-blown training. And, you know, th that's, those are, you know, costly to create and they're great, but they're expensive to create and, you know, takes time. So yeah, we don't go into it lightly at all. In fact, if I could share a quick story about how our vertical came to be, we were building, much like you said, a homegrown system for a single boat captain here in San Diego. He, he liked what we did so much. He says, I've got to take this to the rest of the fleet. I got to have all my people see this. And his enthusiasm translated into, it got me enthusiastic about it. So I said, okay, let's make this a thing. And he said, guys, I don't want to own it. I just want to help build it so that we can bring this to the industry. So that's what we did. If it wasn't for this guy in San Diego, this boat captain, his name is Rob. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have a vertical market in that because he literally was the Pied Piper. Once we built that thing, we did have a booth, but we didn't do any selling in that booth. It was basically Rob bringing every one of his friends over and say, you got to check this out. Check out this demo. These are my guys in San Diego. Da, 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 da. And before you know it, we were selling this thing left and right, but we didn't actually do any of the selling. Rob did all the selling for us because he was the industry insider. He was the leader of his industry, and he essentially led the industry to our product. So that was exciting to, to see that happen. But we wouldn't have been able to do it without him, and nor have we wouldn't even started it without him. So that's the key of having that industry expertise and or sales person at the ready to pull these things off. So that's how we did our vertical. Now we've talked, uh, Michael and I have talked a lot about the development process during uh, other podcasts, uh, one specifically about it, but then we, you know, comes up a lot, and we. Uh, are both very different the way we approach it. And although I've been considering some of his uh, ideas on it and changed the way I, I basically do things, and I've changed the way I've done business all the way throughout my career, how I decide to develop a solution for a client who calls me up or however I get a hold of them. And I'm interested, without leading you into it, what your process is 
when somebody says, I want a solution, how do you start? Can you give us like the, the seven things or whatever they are that you guys do and maybe a brief description of each one? So some people can get an idea out there how uh, somebody with, you know, several decades worth of experience views how to produce a solution so that they can learn from you. That's really what people listen to this podcast for. They want people with experience to say, hey, this is how I do things. So if a customer comes to us and says, first of all, it's fairly... It's, it's less of the case where people come to us wanting a brand new solution and more of the case people saying we have an existing solution, you know, our developer moved out of town, can you help us with it? I think that's the majority of where our customers come to productive computing. But there are occasions where people are looking at the FileMaker platform, they've seen it, they've seen our core uh, CRM, for example, and they might say, okay, I want to build a solution. So first of all, I th- the very first thing we do is we size the customer up in terms of we don't think about anything technical. We think about who the customer is, their motives, their personality, whether we think they would be a good fit, that there would be a win-win and some synergy between their company and ours, between their, person- their personality and ours. It's really the, the key to any good business relationship is, can I work with this person? Uh, do we hit it off? Then beyond that, we ask them what their experience is. Um, that's one of the most important questions. For instance, one of the big questions we ask is, have you ever worked with a developer before building a custom system in a time and materials type basis? And if they say no, unfortunately, that brings them down a couple notches in our that means that we're going to have to work a little harder with this customer to potentially train them on what that process is like. Another question we'll ask is, how many hours a week do you have to dedicate to this project, either in the form of meetings, strategic planning, or testing? If they say a half hour, that's also not a good answer because they don't realize what it takes on their end to be a partnership with building a solution. Then we'll ask them things like, oh, how familiar are you with FileMaker? What do you know so far? Do you, you, know, do you need more knowledge on the platform? And then we know where to start, begin asking those questions. And as, as that story unfolds, and as you start sizing up this, this opportunity, all of a sudden you really gain perspective on it. And as that's happening, obviously there comes a point where they say what they want. And usually that's what they want to begin with. They say, hello, my name is such and such, and I want to build a system that does this, this, and this. And we kind of have to say, okay, well, wait, let's take a step back and ask some other questions. <laughs> so once they start going down the technical path, uh, we try to do all of those on recorded meetings so that we can capture it in case we miss a detail. And, and in case they miss a detail, because quite often they'll think they said something that they didn't necessarily say. Uh, so we record everything when it comes to the details like that. And we put it all together and then we start uh, giving some knee-jerk reactions, either not so much price, but more like number of hours. And even that's tough. We kind of put some things together to, to guide them from a consultant standpoint of what would be our approach into solving, into creating the solution? What would be our approach? Would we start with this module and then go to this? Or maybe you'd be smarter to do this. What we try to do is take those years of experience and and know-how and put it in such a way that we think would, if, if, if we were in their shoes, what would we do if we were them? And whenever you put yourself in the customer's shoes, I think it always goes better that way. So those are some of our tips and secrets, if you will, on how we start thinking about a custom solution when a customer comes across our plate. I think the most important thing, and John and I have talked about this at some length, is the necessity for the customer to understand that this is a highly collaborative and iterative process. 
we can't do as our developers we can't do our job without a tremendous amount of reaction and action from the customer they've got to be part of that process because otherwise we're just shooting in the dark yep correct on those rare occasions a customer might have a loose specification which helps but i don't think uh, there's anything that can substitute collaboration in the way that you described it no it's absolutely essential and it's also very necessary to be agile and you know not go too far down a a path without making sure that you're on the right track. Correct. And, you know, the customer's perception, you don't really know what it is, and they don't even know what to think or what questions to ask. So a lot of times we're training them in a, in a sense or guiding and leading them to have a successful project. I use an analogy. I say, you go to the doctor and you say, and you sort of, sometimes you self-diagnose, you say, my leg hurts and I need surgery. You go in with those preconceived notions of, you know what you want and you know the cure. I need surgery, my leg hurts. But before the doctor does any of that, they typically say, well, let's ask about your diet, let's do the vitals and let's take some x-rays. And I think those things are the things we need to think about as FileMaker developers. Okay, let's, let's and that's again, the personality test, asking what their background is, what their current experience is, do they have time to dedicate in their day for all that? And those are what I call the x-rays and the vitals and the preliminary interview questions. I can't emphasize the last thing that you said more. I really can't put it into words and, and I'm going to give an analogy here. The same kind of thing happens with clients or they're kind of clients when you're on the forums and people will say, I want X, Y, Z. And couple people with less experience will come on and say, hey, you could do this or you could do this or you can do this. And then I'll come on or somebody else who has more experience will say, well, why do you want to do that? Yep. What's the reasoning for that? And that's kind of the same idea. You have to be a person who asks questions to your client because if you don't, you're just going to give them what they want, but what they want is not really what they want. Because they don't know what they want. And that's one of the, the biggest difficulties is most clients and I think I can safely say most clients don't know what they really want because they don't know what's possible. And the three of us and other professional developers, we pretty much know what's possible, what can be done. And therefore we come at it from a, a much broader viewpoint than they will ever do. And the way that comes up is, oh my God, I didn't realize we could do that. Well, if you could do that, why can't we do this? So it's the work that we do, knowing what we know, will then stimulate their imagination and curiosity and have them start thinking outside of what they know. I think what it comes down to is making sure that your client tells you about their business and that you're the one who translates along with them, of course, to you know, electronic medium. And so it's, it's not then saying you don't want your client to come and say, Hey, I need a portal and I need a table and I need this and I need this. You need to find out what their business actually does and design something along those lines. And so you want to make sure you don't just take the client and do what they ask you to, because it's not always really in their best interest. Yeah, no, I agree. And for customers that uh, don't, really know all the answers or don't know the capabilities. I think the key word is motive. You have to find out why they think they want a system or why they think they want improvements 
because sometimes it's because they want to be more secure. Sometimes it's because they want to be more organized. Sometimes it's because they want more efficiency. Sometimes it's because they want to sell the business in five years and they know that having a good system will do that. Sometimes it's because they lost data or lost money because of mistakes. So if you can identify the motive, then you can get into their head and figure out what they're dreaming about, what they see as success at the end of the day. Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm trying to say too. So I'm glad you put it in those terms because that's what you need to find out is why are they trying to do this? What reason, what business problem are they trying to solve? Why are, you know, you know, don't just say they've, they may have sat down and thought about it a long time and looked at some FileMaker videos and done this and say, Hey, I need a, this, but if you really get down and talk to that client, and find out what their motives are. That's a great word. I haven't used that one for to describe this before. Then you find out really the best solution rather than just giving them what they may have from their limited perspective on what FileMaker can do, just giving them what they think they need. You need to give them what their business needs and what, you know, you need to solve their problem and you need to find out what that problem is, not just go with what they've discovered and what they think the solution is. You have to figure out what their problem actually is and then work from there. Don't just start off in the middle of, of the whole conversation and try to figure out what's going on. You need to start at the beginning. And sometimes the clients have already gone past that and they, they really don't think they need to tell you, but you need to get it out of them. You need to talk to them about it. That's right. And they often have a hard time articulating it too. So that can be made a little easier with the way you question them. Well, you'll probably laugh at this, Mark. And I think John did when I first told him, once I know the broad outlines of what the client's trying to achieve, the question I ask over and over and over again of everybody that's working at the company is what drives you the most nuts? Because typically that's where there's a bottleneck. And if you can isolate that bottleneck you can then find ways to circumvent it or eliminate it and so it's a really important question to to ask and it elicits amazing information so let's uh talk about the stages once you mark have decided yes we like this person we like this project we feel like we're going to have good synergy what are the stages of your development? What do you start with and where do you go through with that, if you don't mind revealing that? Sure. Well, I think this is one of the most difficult questions that you've asked so far because it's one of the most difficult things to really say it's black and white because it isn't. Mm. And we've changed over the years how we've done things. We've In the old days, uh, we had no estimates and would sort of just go agile from day one and just almost start building kind of that lack of experience that, okay, you said you want one of these and two of those, I'll give you one of these and two of those and just sort of do it that way. Then as we grew and our customers got bigger, they wanted more formal estimates. So then we would take the time and make a formal estimate, you know, two or three pages of details and things like that and come up with our best price that we could possibly, you know, estimate. And uh, it was often wrong. And it was often lower than what it should have been or needed to be for one reason or another. And then, you know, nowadays we're moving away from those grandiose formal estimates into more of a, definitely an iterative process. But I can tell you what we do is we provide that initial consultation. Uh, I don't traditionally talk to customers on the, I, I actually talk to a lot of hosting customers who have special needs, but I don't necessarily talk to custom customers that now is being run by, um, 
Keith and his team. And what we do is on that first consultation, we have a lead developer, the developer that's most likely going to do the work. So that's two developers. We have project coordinator slash production manager. In this case, it would be like Sally. And then we would have possibly Keith on the phone to drive as well as Adam for sales and licensing and follow-up. So we have like five or six people on this first call. We call it the free consult. And it generally goes one to two hours. And the customer at that point gives us a broad overview of what it is. And we take all these notes and put it all together. From there, the lead developer formulates a plan as far as a technical plan. We identify what else they might need. Do they need FileMaker licensing? Are they a hosting customer? All these other things. What what plugins will they need? What do they already have? How does this, you know, we we basically learn how we're going to have to work with them. And then after all that's done, generally speaking, now they know we've heard them. We've taken good notes and we come back with a plan. And that plan is usually to take a very small first step. And I say small, it's, it's never really small, but it's relatively small. Sometimes these projects are large in scope, you know, six months to a year. We obviously can't just do the whole thing uh, at once. So what we normally do for a brand new customer is start slowly, build a particular module or decide as a group where we want to begin. We begin it and we build it. And that way we have something for the money they pay. Now they're starting to see some immediate results. They can start to learn what it's like to work with us and we can still get a feel for them. And that's how it evolves. And all of this whole process, everything I've just talked about in the last three seconds is to do nothing more than build trust. That's all it's doing because you have to have trust in a relationship with a customer and they have to trust you or else no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter how good your work is, it won't matter. They have to trust that what you do is exactly what they're looking for, or they like where this relationship is going. So that's that's a little bit of our secret sauce of how we do things today. Uh, is it always smooth and clear cut? No. Is it sometimes difficult? Yes. I think one of the hardest aspects of a FileMaker business to grow is the custom development side. Personally, I think it's very difficult. It's easy on the one hand because the, there's a big need for it. A lot of FileMaker customers out there, they all want some form of customization. That part's easy. The hard part is doing all that work, providing great value, great return on investment for them. They don't always see or appreciate all the things you do behind the scenes. It's hard to bring that to light. They're generally not interested in listening to that because it can be very technical. But that's where the trust comes in. You know, They don't realize sometimes that you have to spend 10 hours because you found a bunch of layouts and tables that don't belong and are renamed all incorrectly that you can't even get past in order to move forward, especially in these giant uh, systems that have been built 20 years ago, as you guys probably have stumbled upon in your life. So yeah, that's a little bit how we do it. We start with a free consult that builds into a a plan. We start slow, we walk before we run, and then we evolve from there. This concludes part one of an interview with Mark LaRochelle, CEO of Productive Computing. We hope you'll join us next week for part two. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. And my name is John Mark Osborne. Thanks for listening, and please post any comments. We love to hear from everybody. Yeah, we do. Thank you, and bye-bye now. You've been listening to Fireside FileMaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. We'd love to hear what you think, so please email us at info at firesidefilemaker.com. That's info at firesidefilemaker.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.